Welcome back to the commentary to Parashat Shoftim. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm the author of the commentary. And we have been talking about the oral tradition, or um, the Torah Shiba Al Peh, the Torah from the mouth. And if you're confused about the topic, I advise you to go back to part A and listen to the uh, introduction to the material. Otherwise, if you've got the written notes, which I always highly recommend you have handy when you're listening to my podcasts, we are about the middle of page three. Where we're going to talk about, uh, basically in a nutshell, what the um, oral tradition is and why it bears any relevance at all to the um, current Christian community. What many people may not know is that Judaism, well, the Judaism of today is not necessarily the Judaism of the Bible. Um, many times uh, teachers, such as myself, will refer to classic Judaism or biblical Judaism as biblical Judaism. And what what happens is, is there has been a shift in the um, in the makeup of Judaism right after the destruction of the temple. Uh, Judaism started going through some necessary changes and then it was more or less finalized uh, after the, uh, the Bar Kokhba revolt somewhere near um, about 130 or so AD, uh, ACE, after the Common Era, uh, when the Jewish people were expelled from Jerusalem. Uh, threatened never again to return under pains of death by the uh, current Roman rule. So Judaism has gone through stages of evolution uh, to where today the Judaisms that we look at, um, uh, we, when I say we, I mean from the outside looking in, the Judaisms of today, uh, broken up into their various Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Reconstructionist, um, and such sex, uh, and, and then the various bro- uh, breakdowns in within those sections that I just gave you, um, it it resembles biblical Judaism, but um, that's probably about it. I mean, it resembles biblical Judaism. It has a skeletal frame of biblical Judaism, but the meat on the bones um, is far removed from the biblical Judaism that we read about, especially first century Pharisaic Judaism, especially, uh, you know, the Judaism of either Moses' day or the Judaism of even Paul's day that we read about in your average New Testament. So you need to keep that in mind as you're reading through your Torah that the Judaisms of today are not the Judaisms of yesteryear. In fact, there are about, oh, let's see, maybe six or so different um, stages that Judaism has gone through that uh, uh, are, are significant stages of their formulation. Prior to the destruction of the temple, um, there were, uh, I mean, as far as leadership's concerned, we had a Sanhedrin. You're all familiar with this term, Sanhedrin. It's the, it's the, uh, you know, it's the high court of law. And uh, since we're talking about justice and halacha, then um, obviously the the uh, topic of, of uh, Sanhedrin is going to get pulled into that. It's a bet den. It's a court, a house of judgment. The uh, the term um, bayi den refers to a bet den, house of judgment. And um, this is the place where we had the, the president, the Nasi, um, who would oversee the Sanhedrin, make sure um, everything was in order. There was usually a uh, um, uh, we had a president and a, and a vice president. And um, it was during this time that we had five, oh, how do we say, um, we had we have five pairs of spiritual leadership or five pairs of religious teachers up until the destruction of the temple. Um, Hillel and Shammai were probably two of the most famous of these zugot, these pairs. So at any rate, um, 
that was one time period. And then after that, necessarily, uh, you know, Judaism had to restructure itself because the Sadducees, the priestly caste, they had to uh, reformulate or die out, and eventually we know history shows them to have died out. Um, the, there, there was a time period that arose um, after that known as the Tanaim, or a, a teacher was known as a Tana. And um, during this time period, uh, the oral tradition began to be very, very prominent. That which began as only written, I'm sorry, as only oral, suddenly became written. Due to necessity, I might add, they did not really originally want to write these maxims down. Um, there was a tradition that states that we shouldn't. Uh, but eventually, out of necessity, it had to be written down, or else they were going to lose it. So the Tana, uh, you know, the, the 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 period of the Tanaim took over, as it were, and ruled to about, or or uh, worked its way into the community, for, you know, for another 200 years or so, to about 200 CE, uh, A.C.E. Uh, and then after that, we have other time periods that I'm not going to discuss, but the Amoraim, the Savoraim, the Gionim, uh, the Rishonim, and then finally we. Um, Today we're living in the period of what is known as the Acharonim. At any rate, uh, the um, the time period during the Tanaim. Um, this is the time period when the when the uh, Talmud or the oral tradition started to gain a lot of uh, shape, and so it was during the highlight of this period of rabbinic Judaism um, that the teachers heavily taught their students as well as the people, that God revealed his will not only through the written Torah, but also through the unwritten traditions as well. Following along with my commentary here now in the middle of page 3, the rabbis, that's when they were actually called rabbis. Prior to that, they were really probably known as proto-rabbis. At any rate, uh, <laughs> you know, I just I was listening to my commentaries the other day, and I realized that I use the term at any rate quite often. Let <laughs> me see if I can get rid of that terminology out of my vocabulary. Anyway, the rabbis claimed that the oral Torah, which was transmitted by word of mouth, that's why it's called oral Torah, was also given to Moshe at Mount Sinai, teaching that it had in fact existed side by side along with the written Torah ever since. I want to pull a quote from um, the tra a tractate out of the Talmud known as uh, uh, Pirkei Avot, uh, Sayings of the Fathers, or Tractate Avot, uh, in verse one one or chapter one verse one of this of this tractate, we read this statement quote, Moshe received the law from Sinai and transmitted it to Joshua and Joshua to the elders and the elders to the prophets. The prophets transmitted it to the men of the great assembly end quote that 's Avot one one that same tractate goes on to talk about how that they are supposed to establish courts of justice and and um, and to uh, you know, gather uh, students to yourself and to make a fence around Torah. We're not going to go there for the moment j just yet. I just want to focus on the part that you um, uh, uh, you need to understand that according to the oral tradition, God gave it to Moses. Moses received the law. And when it says the law, they believe it was both written and unwritten. Written law and unwritten. Both coming from Moshe. And then being passed down unbroken, as it were, to Yehoshua, and then to the men of the Sanhedrin, that's the, the, the elders, I'm sorry, the, the elders, and then the uh, to the prophets, and then to the men of the great assembly, the Sanhedrin. We do recognize from the Torah point of view that Moshe does pass the law to Joshua, and Joshua does give it to the elders, and then the elders give it to the prophets, and the prophets do, as it were, give it to the men of the great assembly. As far as the written Torah is concerned, we have no problem with that. 
I say we, speaking for both Christians and many Messianic Jews. But many people do not follow that uh, tradition, the one that I just stated there, out of Avot. This unwritten Torah, this oral Torah, was it really divine? Was it really from God? That's where the question arises. According to tradition, again, this unwritten Torah was eventually written down and collected in the voluminous book referred to as the Talmud. The Talmud is... Um, uh, it's it's a it's a work. <laughs> it was destined to be a work that would never really be uh, uh, finished because of all the 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 addendums that that became added to it. All of the uh, the additions, I should say. The the uh, the Talmud started out as the oral collections brought together. It's about oh I'd say eighty percent halacha and twenty percent agadic. Uh, halacha being of course the um, the rulings that have been passed down from the judges and those um, leaders in the community, uh, those who are appointed over the people. Remember, our Torah portion starts off in Shoftim with God commanding Moshe to have the people elect leaders and judges among them. Chapter 17 of Deuteronomy says just that, that you are to appoint leaders in your community and that for whatever ruling that they give to you, you are not to turn to the right to the left. There is a precedent in the Torah, in the written Torah, for establishing leadership in a community and that we, the followers, are supposed to listen to what they say. I'm not disputing that. The um, halakha, however, can be applied to a community as long as they give that leader the uh, authority to um, to govern them. And so the halakha gains its weight from the both the leadership and the community following that leadership. Uh, let's break down the Talmud for a split second. Uh, Talmud is really kind of like a Bible, if you think about it in this crude way, composed of two parts. We have the first part, known as the Mishnah, which is a word which refers to repetition, Mishnah, uh, to repeat or to go over and over again. Uh, this would refer to most of the oral tradition. Um, Halakha, of course, is going to be captured within the Mishnah. And then there was a, um, a section that was uh, added to the Mishnah to really come along and explain or comment or 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 uh, ex- extend the Mishnah, as it were. And this second section was known as the Gemara, um, the, you know, that which completes the Mishnah. The word Gemara suggests completion. The Mishnah was compiled by Rabbi Judah the Prince, who was born in 135 after the destruction of the Temple. And uh, the Mishnah itself is the most important tradition in the Talmud. Now, those of you who are curious about picking up a copy of the Talmud, just don't bother. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now, don't bother yourself. Why not? The, the Talmud is so lengthy and so, so voluminous, as I mentioned earlier, that to pick up a copy of the Talmud in written form, you're talking about several hundred dollars and uh, several spe- feet of bookshelf space in your home. It's probably easier these days if you want to familiarize yourself with the Talmud. Either go to to your average bookstore, do a search for the word Talmud, and you can find various commentaries that will give you the gist of the Talmud. Or if you're serious about reading through it, um, which I don't understand why you want to read through it. It's not a book that you read from cover to cover. Uh, You may be interested in picking up a CD-ROM version if you have a computer. CD-ROM will allow you to... You know, search it electronically. I have a copy of it electronically. Um, Jacob Neusner compiled the most helpful rendition of the Talmud. It's available both in print as well as CD-ROM. And I use the CD-ROM. I'm looking at it right now. Here, it's sitting in front of my computer as I record this podcast. 
in the introduction to this particular um, version of the Talmud, he makes these insightful comments about the formulation of the Talmud. So rather than me trying to explain it to you, I'm going to go ahead and let um, Newsner explain the Talmud to you, and then we'll return to its uh, relevance to us as Christians, because we're going to find out that in the apostolic scriptures in the New Testament, Yeshua makes a cryptic statement about the leaders of his day and the powers that they wield, and whether or not we should obey them or whether we should ignore them. And uh, we're going to see how it bears relevance to Christians, because it's found in our New Testament, it's found in our Bibles. But first, let's let Newsner explain the Talmud to us, okay? Quote, uh, and then I'll give you the, uh, the reference where I pulled all this from, if you happen to be interested in picking up that version of the Talmud on CD-ROM. It is still also several hundred, several hundred dollars. However, it's far less expensive than picking up the printed form. The Mishnah of 200 CE and the Gemara of 600 CE mark two of the four major stages in the history of the form and the formation of normative Judaism that begins with scripture and makes its authoritative statement in the Talmud. The, uh, by the way, again, the word Talmud, I said the word Mishnah refers to repetition and Gemara seems to refer to um, uh, completion. The word Talmud itself stems from a Hebrew word which uh, has to do with learning. In fact, the Hebrew letter Lamed, L-A-M-E-D, is kind of a root word for this word Talmud, which refers to learning. Uh, Lamed means to learn, uh, Lamad means to learn, and Lamed, the letter um, from where you're hearing the word Talmud is captured within that, has to refer to learning, so Talmud refers to learning. At any, I almost said at any rate, you heard me. I'm, I'm trying to sw- get, get, get out of that statement. Uh, just kind of bugged me after I went back and heard my own commentaries and I heard myself saying it over and over again. Let's see if I can change that. All right. As as it as it is, uh, Jacob Newsner goes on to say that uh, the begi- the first stages of the Talmud find its complete presentation in the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, which came to closure. Um, it is commonly supposed in circulation of 450. BCE, before the Common Era, circa 450 BCE. The Pentateuch defined both the foundations of law and the master narrative of Judaism. The second stage, referring to the Talmud, is comprised by the long period of oral tradition, circa 450 BCE to 200 CE, that followed the closure of the Pentateuch and ended with the first steps in the formation of the Mishnah, taken in the first century of the Common Era. And of course... During this period, oral traditions augmented the laws of the Pentateuch by covering topics not treated in the written part of the Mosaic Revelation. Let me pause and interject. That's exactly how I described the Halakha earlier on. We have augmentation of the written, because the written Torah is not comprehensive enough to cover every single facet of life. That is why we refer to the Halakha as the humanization of the Word of God. The Torah with all of its perfection and glory, and it is a great reference work. It is a it is a written revelation of God himself. It is perfect in its um, original autograph in that it needn't, it needn't be added to or subtracted from. However, it is a mere thumbnail sketch, as it were, of 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 the the totality of Jewish life, and so it can't possibly cover every single facet of human experience. In in seminal form, it does. I mean, it 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 
provides the background and the uh, the the impetus for gaining a, a better appreciation for the in, in fact the oral tradition, but the oral tradition comes along and fills in those gaps where the written tradition um, seems to be silent, and that is how the rabbis view it. So going back to Neusner's description, let's pick it up on uh, the top of page four. This stage, referring to the augmentation of the written material, this stage is a matter of surmise because we have no surviving written documents in the tradition of the ancient rabbinic sages deriving from the period between the close of the writing of the Pentateuch and the writing of the Mishnah. We return to the second stage in a moment. The third stage, that of the formation of the Mishnah as we know it in the first two centuries of the Common Era, came to realization in particular with the setting down to writing of the Mishnah circa 200 CE. That, of course, that 200 CE would have been the end of the Tanaitic period. The Mishnah and its companion uh, supplementary collections, um, when he says supplementary, he's referring to the Mishnah and the Tosefta, along with scriptural exegesis, which is known as Midrash. Okay? These... uh, um, these companions organized and systematized the oral traditions that accompany the written law of the Torah contained in the Pentateuch. These topical expositions will be described and the religious system for Israel's social order that they constructed will be defined below. Now this, of course, is the introduction to the CD-ROM version of the Talmud. If you have it, you read this is what I'm giving to you. The fourth stage, that of the Gemara, or Talmud, uh, sometimes we say Mishnah and Talmud. Other times we say Talmud is referring to all of it. The Gemara is much lengthier um, because it is a um, an ex- expansion of the Mishnah, including sometimes a Baraita, um, where we have what what we might refer to as an external Mishnah, something that didn't make it in the first Mishnah. An external Mishnah may come along kind of like a, a little footnote to the Mishnah, as it were, a Baraita. Uh, but for the most part, the Gemara, the fourth stage, is going to be the largest part of what we call the Talmud. Uh, the Talmud, when sometimes when people say Talmud, they are only referring to Gemara. Other times when they say Talmud, we're really just referring to the whole book, Mishnah and Gemara. But since the Gemara is the bulk of the of that work, it's 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 okay to call the uh, the the Gemara the Talmud itself. Any anyway, this is the fourth stage that um, Neusner refers to. Let's go back to his commentary here and close it up. The fourth stage, that of the Gemara or Talmud, resulted in the systematic clarification and amplification of the Mishnah by the two Talmuds. Well, he'll just explain what he means by two Talmuds. Along with the collection of the exegesis of passages of, of Scripture important in synagogue life. These two works are the Talmud, the two now, he's going to explain the two Talmuds. The two works are the Talmud of the Land of Israel in the Roman Empire, circa 400 CE, and the larger one, the Babylonian Talmud in the Iranian Empire, circa 600 CE. And of the two Talmuds, the Babylonian Talmud, which we simply say Bavli, uh, the word Bavli is Hebrew for Babylonian, the Bavli, the Bavli provides the conclusive statement of rabbinic Judaism, end quote. In other words, we have two Talmuds in existence today, and only one of them is, is extremely authoritative, and that's the Bavli, the larger work, the more comprehensive work, the Bavli, the Jerusalem Talmud, or the Yerushalmi. That particular Talmud, to my, to my knowledge, 
uh, is not even completely translated into English yet. The Bavli is. Again, Neusner's translation is just one of those. Schottenstein's is another version that you can pick up um, uh, translated into English. Okay. This whole, All this talk about the Talmud and about oral tradition and, um, and, and, and adding to, as it were, filling in the gaps where the, uh, the written law does not give us enough information. All of this information may seem strange to us, um, but I, I suppose I should say don't think this is a strange practice. We do find this phenomenon in other religions as well. Islam has the, uh, what do we call, the uh, Quran, and then they have the Hadith, or the Hadith. Uh, Christianity, both Catholic and Orthodox versions, have their apostolic traditions, their their um, uh, what is uh, their their uh, uh, can uh, their what does Catholicism call it? The uh, um, the larger volume. Their their starts with a D. No, starts with a C. I'm drawing a blank. When I remember the word, I'll let you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the Protestant churches generally don't recognize apostolic traditions as authoritative as the written Bible. But they do recognize their importance for theology, uh, you know, the, the the additions, as it were, to the written material, the traditions that surround the written material, the um, traditions of their elders, the traditions of their of their uh, patristic fathers, and so on and so forth. Going back to the Mish, uh, the Talmud for just a split second, I I decided since I'm sitting in front of my computer, why not open up. Uh, Wikipedia, that famous resource, and turn to the page on the Talmud. And if you look there and scroll down a little bit, they'll actually give you a peek inside the Talmud to include the six orders of the Siddharim, the orders of the Talmud. There are various chapters, as it were, breakdowns of discussion of the Talmud and the Mishnah. They tell you about what a Baraita is, about what a, the Gemara is. Halakha and Agada are both topics in this um, article on uh, Wikipedia. It's, it's quite a helpful little um, page there, if I can call it little. So maybe I recommend you go there if you have more questions about the Talmud that I'm not going to be able to cover in this particular commentary. Go ahead and take a peek at that there. I know pe- plenty of people, both both Jews and Christians, are interested in, more interested in what the Talmud is, because it seems to carry so much weight in Jewish circles, and they want to know, what what is it that's causing such a buzz? Let's return to my own commentary for now. Returning to the verses in question in the beginning of our Torah portion, and from a cursory reading of Deuteronomy 17, verses 8 through 13, as I mentioned earlier, it appears to be a valid teaching about establishing a governing body of legal authority based on the spoken opinion of the judge of the day. If you just read the passage at at at, at face value or um, just at, you know at first blush, uh, it seems to be that this is what the passage is talking about. And I'm not going to completely discount the strong possibility that that's what it is referring to as establishing a leadership in your day and following to the letter everything they say. Especially if we have a courtroom setting, you know how it goes. Uh, the irony of of this. Um, thought that I'm referring to right now about uh, being in court and listening to what the judges and the magistrates hand down is that just prior to recording this commentary, I had jury duty just today. That's right. I had jury duty. And where would I find myself? In a courtroom setting. And we had to listen to the uh, the defendant, the prosecution, and the uh, the uh, the um, 
uh, we had a uh, uh, what do we call them? Um, the uh, um, the two parties that are going at each other off the top of my head are the defendant and the plaintiff, and then we had the prosecution, I guess, you know, representing the state of Colorado where I live, and then we had a judge and we had the court recorder and and all the different officers of the court, and it's just interesting that while I'm sitting in jury duty, I'm, my mind is on Parashat Shoftim. So, <laughs> I'm sorry, I just had to let you guys know about that. Looking at Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 13, um, this seems to be where the halakha gains its strength and application, because the term, uh, uh, or the phrase where it says, um, you know, everything that they hand down to you, you are to listen to what they have to say to you. I don't believe that everything that they hand down to us, they, the rulers and the judges, is going to be found exactly word for word in the written material. They are going to uh, put together a ruling based on the written material, but they are going to have to formulate their case law uh, and and base it upon the written, but it's going to be their own opinion. That's where we seem to get this halakha, and that's where it gains its strength. The term, again, halakha, remember, roughly is translated the way in which to walk. Now, the rabbis see in this particular passage here in Deuteronomy chapter 17 an opportunity to establish the tradition of the oral Torah as authoritative. Now, remember, as they see it, this passage instructs its readers, quote, in accordance with the Torah they teach you. In the word Torah, there's law or teaching. In accordance with this teaching they teach you, you are to carry out the judgment they render, not turning aside to the right or to the left from the verdict they declare to you. That's verse 11 of chapter 17 of Deuteronomy. Taking this verse in its most natural and literal sense, it does seem to validate the right for the rabbis to impose their judgments on all succeeding generations. Because it says, um, in accordance with the law they teach you, carry it out, don't turn to the right or turn to the left. Especially, uh, interesting, is it says that for the judge of that day, now, uh, to strengthen the argument suggested here by the rabbis, we turn to the apostolic scriptures, the New Testament, and now here's where I want you Christians to really pay attention. Uh, we turn to a first century rabbi by the name of Yeshua, Jesus, obviously, and he had this to say to his crowd, quote, the Torah teachers and the Purushim, the Pharisees, he said, sit in the seat of Moses, or Moshe. So whatever they tell you, take care to do it, but don't do what they do because they talk but don't act, end quote. Isn't that interesting? Let's look at his phrase again. The master himself, looking at the Torah teachers of his day and the Pharisees, the people that we Christians usually figure are the bad guys of the peace, Yeshua looks at them and says they sit in the seat of Moshe. We don't know what that term means exactly just yet. We'll talk about it later on. So whatever they tell you, take care to do it, but don't do what they do because they talk but don't act. Sounds like a matter of hypocrisy. Let's turn to one translator and his commentary to see if we can begin to unlock this cryptic statement by Yeshua. I'm going to obviously use David Stern because he's one of my favorites. He's, he is messianic in his approach. He does not relegate the Torah to a status of done away with or no longer has any bearing in the life of a believer. He's a Jewish man who does believe in Yeshua and his commentary to the Jewish New Testament is where I'm going to pull a quote from. Quote, Sit in the seat of Moshe. He's now going to explain this phrase. Exercising the power of the Kohen of judge in the office of that time. And David Stern then links this statement of Yeshua's, the seat of Moshe, directly with the information that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 8 through 13, which is right here in our parasha. Stern goes on to say, 
that uh, these leaders would officially interpret the Torah. There are some who understand this verse, speaking of of uh, of uh, Matthew. You know what? I didn't even give the reference for the verse. I apologize. Let me let me let me pause. I didn't even give you the address. It's Matthew chapter twenty-three. Let me just turn to it. Let me just add it also to my commentary. Let's see. Let's add it here. It is Matthew twenty-three verses one through three. There we are. Okay, I apologize for that. Matthew 23, 1-3. Those are the verses in question out of the Apostolic Scriptures. In my commentary on page uh, 5, they show up in red because that shows that Yeshua is talking. Okay, Using kind of the tradition of red-letter edition there. Stern goes on to conclude that this is... Uh, I'm sorry, these. there are some who understand this verse, uh, Matthew 23, 1-3, these verses to mean that according to Yeshua, the Oral Torah as expounded in Orthodox Judaism is binding on Messianic Jews today. Stern goes down to confess, I do not believe this because I think Yeshua had already initiated a process transferring halakhic authority from the Kohenim, the judges and the rabbis, to the emissaries and later leaders of the Messianic community. End quote. Stern's quote was lifted from, if you look at the footnote down to the bottom of page 5, from his Jewish New Testament commentary, JNT Publications, in 1996. I pulled that quote from page 67. Notice that Stern does not believe that the oral tradition, the oral Torah, as expounded by Orthodox Judaism, both of, of those days, uh, you remember the time period of the Tanaim and following, down to today, the oral tradition, Stern goes on to say he does not believe it's binding on Messianic Jews. He believes for two reasons. One, he already mentioned in his commentary that he believes that Yeshua has begun a transfer of the halakhic authority from um, normative Judaism over to his own, uh, his own Talmudim. Because there is going to be a shift in power, as it were, from the first century Judaisms in that time period uh, Yeshua is going to noticeably uh, transfer authority to his disciples because of the importance of the differences between what is going to be later known as Rabbinic Judaism and what is now known as as uh, Messianic Judaism. In a word, we disagree on the primary um, um, uh, authority behind the writings of both uh, the Apostolic Scriptures versus the rabbis, the later rabbis. Did you guys follow where I'm going with that? Is it, did anyone get lost? Yeshua is going to say that the leaders of his day have authority vested from Moshe. From, from Moshe. They sit in the seat of Moshe. And therefore, as long as we have leaders in our community, whether it's a Jewish community or non-Jewish community, if it's a community that espouses to Torah, then the leaders of that community have the right to make decisions regarding uh, legal matters, especially when it refers to courtroom settings. In other words, let me give you an example. When I was when I was in jury duty today, the judge sitting in the uh, uh, at the front of the court, at the head of the court, he had absolute authority. Now he wasn't completely autonomous, but for the time being, it was his court. He could throw people out of court if they were disruptive. He could he could say what is and what is not. It was his court, and so he passed rulings. The state of Colorado vested him with that authority to sit there and to uh, to judge the case that we were hearing. I was part of the jury selection, obviously. I was, that's why they call it jury duty. Uh, I simply lent my voice to a decision on the case being um, 
discussed that day. But I was not the judge. I didn't have the right to uh, throw anyone out of court or, or anything like that. The judge makes the ruling. So the parties that are being represented that day, you know, the plaintiff and the, and the defendant, they had to listen to the judge. And whatever ruling the judge finally determined, that is the ruling they had to listen to. So now we understand the context of when Yeshua said, these gentlemen, these Torah teachers and, and, the, and the Pharisees, they sit in the seat of Moses. Now the Torah teachers there are the scribes. Uh, they were the priests. But the Pharisees were the people... Uh, were the politicians, I should say, of, the, of Yeshua's day, and they sat in the seat of Moshe. They were the rulers, they were the judges of the Deuteronomy passage, and they had the authority vested from God himself to make decisions and legal rulings. And so when you go into court, you don't always get what you want, but you better understand one thing at least. The, the judges and the rulers, it's their court, and you have to listen to uh, the final ruling, if you don't like it, I suppose you can go above them to the next court level, you know, going from like a lower court to a higher court. But eventually you have to do whatever the court says, um, whatever rulings they pass down. And that's what we're understanding um, Stern's commentary to be explaining in one level. On another level, we understand that as Christianity formulated itself outside of rabbinic Judaism, remember after the temple was destroyed, rabbinic Judaism went one direction and and Messianic Judaism went, as it were, a slightly different direction. I'm not saying that, that I agree with the, t with the split completely, but if we have to make a decision, and if Judaism goes in one direction and Yeshua goes in another direction, we go with where Yeshua says to go. He told us to flee, so we fled. We fled to Pela. Um, Rabbinic Judaism went north to Yavne, and Messianic Judaism and Rabbinic Judaism were two of the only Judaisms that survived the destruction of the Temple and the and the later rebellions um, uh, that came afterwards. So we can now understand Yeshua's statement, um, do whatever they tell you to do, but don't do what they do, because they talk and they don't act. They're, hypo they're hypocrites. They don't even follow their own rulings. They don't even follow their own commentaries. What then is my um, view of the oral tradition versus Messianic authority? Let me see if I can explain that part before we break off into another section in my commentary. Um, we are near the bottom of page 5 in the written notes. I have to say that I agree with Stern's interpretation and commentary of the passage in Deuteronomy, as well as Yeshua's own comments on the matter uh, recorded for us in Matthew. Our Lord does not seem to support the oral tradition as binding that is on par with oral, uh, on par with written Torah. It doesn't seem that Yeshua gives oral tradition the same weight as written tradition. However, I might add, it doesn't seem to be that Yeshua completely dismisses the oral tradition as well. Any tradition, when not in direct conflict with Scripture, is harmless. You'd have to agree. At least that's my the way I see it. Traditions in and of themselves are not bad. To be sure, Yeshua seems to uphold many of the traditions of his day, ones that were not necessarily written down but were oral in nature. So don't get the wrong idea. I know there are many of you listening to my commentary who have been led to believe, perhaps maybe from uh, a Karaite, those who don't believe in any oral traditions, um, many of you have been led to believe that all traditions are bad and that we must follow the written word only. I don't believe that to be true. Oral traditions can be harmless, and they can be, um, in my experience, they can be uh, a part of our community ex experience as long as they do not try to wrest authority from the written Torah. As can be shown, a careful distinction needs to be made 
by the Jewish believer in Messiah regarding matters of rabbinic authority, uh, oral Torah, and Torah issues as a whole. We do need to be, 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 as Jewish believers in Yeshua, we do need to be made aware of where there are significant um, disagreements between the written Torah and the oral Torah, especially as is adjudicated by the halakhic um, leaders of the communities that we find ourselves a part of. If our Messiah correctly determines correct Torah interpretation, then a misrepresentation of the true nature and intent of the Torah, whether it be by the sages of the Jewish people or by the non-Jewish scholars of today, needs to be avoided at all costs. We need to steer clear of misrepresentation of anything that seeks to undermine the written tradition. This is especially true if, since most rabbis disagree with the authority of the, of the New Testament, the Brit Chadashah, then the believer finds himself faced with a tough choice to make, and he finds himself seeking the advice of his leaders. I'll give you just one good example. In the time period of the first century, an oral tradition that sought to separate a Jew from Gentile is a tradition that we as Messianics would do well if we jettison. Are you following me? Any tradition that seeks to separate the Jew from the Gentile, and I mean the Jew and the Gentile and Messiah, uh, then that's a tradition that we need to, to, to strongly run away from. And that seems to be a safe example that I can provide for you with now. As I see it as a teacher uh, living in the 21st century, it all comes down to who has the authority to determine halakha in the life of a Messianic Jew. That's a big question today. And unfortunately, space here does not permit me to deal with the matter in great detail. But suffice to say, I understand the New Covenant, the New Testament, to be non-supportive of the supposed inspirational authority of the entirety of the oral Torah, that is, authority vested from heaven concerning legal matters, as expounded in the Talmud. Let me just say it plainly. I don't believe that the Talmud is inspired. I don't believe that it came from uh, Moshe and was handed down through Joshua, through the leaders, and all the way down to where we have it today. I just don't believe that the, that the Mishnah and the Gemara are um, divinely uh, inspired by God. I, I don't think they are. I think they there is some good information there. Don't get me wrong. I own a copy of the Talmud, and I utilize it for my commentaries. I think the Talmud is a good resource if you can um, navigate through it and if you can use it harmlessly as a teacher. However, you misunderstand that there are things in the Talmud that necessarily contradict what the apostolic scriptures seem to hand down to the believers, as well as the uh, the primary thrust of separating Jew from Gentile. That part alone causes me to look at the Talmud with suspect. I don't toss the baby out with the bathwater. I think the Talmud is a valuable resource, but it's a resource that needs to be carefully used um, when utilized within Messianic circles. The verses cited by the rabbis in our parasha just don't seem to conform to the Torah as a whole. Okay, um, In my opinion, evidence is lacking for support of an authoritative oral Torah as a whole. That's what I'm, where I'm going with this. What is more, in instances of oral Torah where clear and unambiguous support is given over to the separation of Jew and Gentiles, just like I described before, as ostensible equal covenant members, uh, covenant believers, the Talmud of Yeshua, I'm sorry, the Talmud of Yeshua, the disciples of Yeshua, must side with the, author the authoritative written word of God on this matter. Let me say it plainly, okay? For those of you who are not following where I'm going with this, 
Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs in the covenants of promise made possible through genuine trusting faithfulness in Yeshua the Messiah. And anything outside of that statement needs to be set aside or to be viewed with suspect. Any tradition, whether oral or written, and of course I don't believe the written tradition, the written commentary, the written Torah is going to have anything negative to say about Jews and Gentiles as equal covenant members in Messiah. It is only the oral tradition that sought to separate these two people groups. Okay, Any tradition that seeks to separate Jew from Gentile as one in Messiah. I'm not talking about separating believers from unbelievers. I'm talking about Jews and Gentiles who are both covenant members, both people groups having um, laid hold of the truth of who Yeshua is as the Son of God. That's what I'm referring to. Obviously, the written notes, the written material of the Torah, the written teachings, um, seek to separate believers, as it were, from pagans. Separating a believer from paganism is a good thing. Um, Not walking uh, not joining with the unbeliever, uh, not being unequally yoked, as it were. Those are written traditions that I uphold, and any oral tradition that upholds that, I'm going to support that as well. I'm referring to believers, both Jew and Gentile, coming together as believers, Jew and Gentile, and walking together there. If the oral tradition disagrees with that, what I've just stated, then I have to turn the other way when it comes to such an oral tradition. So let me... Um, summarize my concluding thoughts on the on both Torah traditions and then I'll just draw this part of my commentary I'll call it part B at about 45 minutes and then we'll um, conclude my commentary with uh, a final section on part C I believe it's crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah both written and or oral as a way of making someone righteous only achieves this goal when the person by faith accepts that Jesus is the promised Messiah spoken about within its pages. And until the individual reaches this conclusion, then his familiarity of the Torah is only so much intellectual nutrition. Only by believing in Yeshua will the person be able to properly understand God and consequently understand his word. We've got to understand that righteousness, as described in the Bible, um, the written Bible, is it seems to be presented in two aspects. It's twofold, as it were. We have forensic righteousness, which Christians call justification. And this forensic righteousness is appropriated the moment that a person becomes saved. He places his trust in Jesus, the Messiah. Behavioral righteousness, the second aspect of this righteousness, is the resulting lifestyle of the former mentioned righteousness, right? Behavioral righteousness is what Christians call sanctification. In other words, I call behavioral righteousness Torah submissiveness. This is the written tradition. This is the written Torah. And this is what we are to to submit ourselves to, to as we walk out the righteousness that the Bible describes for us. The primary differences between these two, forensic and behavioral, as, as far as I see it, is the fact that the first one, forensic, is an act of faith, whereas the latter is an act of obedience, if I could use those wooden descriptions there. I want you to read Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10 carefully, and you'll see this progression of circumstances as I've described them. Now, solid hermeneutics will clearly demonstrate that Yeshua, the Messiah, did not abolish the Torah of Moshe. He did not abolish the written 
Torah of Moshe. This would consequently include, as I see it, the oral tradition that is based on the Torah of Moshe. Remember, the rabbis believe that the oral and the written came from Moshe simultaneously. So if we say that Jesus did away with the law, we Christians, if we say this, and this is a rumor within Christian circles, if we say that Jesus did away with the law, then we can't have the written law disappearing, but the oral tradition staying. If we say Jesus did away with the law, we have to understand that the oral is based on the written, therefore if he did away with the written, then the oral is done away with as well. Are you following me? Moreover, historical corporate Israel is not keeping, in fact she never really ever kept, all of the Torah correctly. This includes the traditions handed down since Abraham our father, Abraham Avinu. Now, the operative word in my statement there, my challenge is correctly. She believes she's keeping it, but she never really fully correctly kept it. What is more, the freedom of Messiah that we read about in the Bible does not give the church or Israel license to practice iniquity. And the word iniquity is the Greek word anamia, and it equates to lawlessness or Torahlessness. Uh, In fact, according to the TSBD, uh, Thayer's and Smith's Bible Dictionary, to the definition of that word anamia, um, it is in fact Torahlessness, it's lawlessness, it's, it's a doing away way with or setting aside of the written word of God, of its lawlessness. To be sure, the freedom that Paul speaks about in his letters is actually freedom not to walk away from the law, but it's freedom to walk into the law as freed men and women. We were bound by sin, and that's where the bondage is. And so when you... When, um, Paul speaks of freedom, he's not talking about freedom from the law. The challenge to the Christian church today is in understanding that Paul is talking about freedom to walk into God's ways, which includes the written words of God, a.k.a. the law, the Torah. Anything other than that is anomia, it's lawlessness, it's iniquity, it's sin. Prior to this Christ-given freedom, we were slaves to sin and thus unable to submit to God's law, even if we wanted to. I want you to go back and read Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, and you'll see what that, that's what Paul's describing. A, a, a slave cannot properly serve God because um, he's a slave to sin. I should say a slave to sin cannot properly serve God until he's been set free from his slavery to sin and made a slave unto righteousness. You're a slave one way or another. The question is, are you a slave to sin or are you a slave to Messiah? Paul would have us become slaves to Messiah, even as he himself described himself as a slave to Messiah. So we are slaves one way or, one way or another. I choose to be a slave to Messiah, don't you? As a slave to Messiah, I become a slave to righteousness. And as a slave to righteousness, that's the term that Paul uses, by the way, in case you're offended by, the, by my use of the phrase slave. As a slave to righteousness, we don't practice iniquity. We do not practice anamia. In a word, we do not practice Torahlessness or lawlessness. Okay? This may be hard to grasp for many of you listening to my commentary, but if a person has accepted the faith of God in the historical person and work of his son, Yeshua, past or present, it doesn't matter, either before the cross or after the cross, then this person who is a believer is keeping the central part of the law, the central part of the Torah, which is, of course, faith in Yeshua. The rest of his law-keeping, of his um, behavioral righteousness, his uh, sanctification, the rest is his journey towards the works of God, as described adequately in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-10. through 10. I'm going to have to conclude that if such an oral tradition, the halacha, 
if it leads a person toward the above-mentioned righteousness that I just described, both forensic righteousness and behavioral righteousness, if a halakha, if an oral tradition orients a person towards this uh, righteousness, then such a tradition is a good and applicable tradition for today's follower of Hashem. And that's all I have to say about the oral tradition right now on that matter. Justice, we are to pursue it. That's right. And as we pursue justice, we need to understand the position that the leaders um, play in our communities. If If we live in a Jewish community and they are handing down rulings, we need not be fast to simply dismiss the rulings that they are handing down. Because Deuteronomy chapter 17 says that we are to listen to what they say. Especially if you find yourself in a court of law, you better do what the judge tells you to do, or else you're going to be find yourself in a whole lot of trouble, both from the judge as well as from the Bible. Okay, That is the authority vested from God. They are the, the, the um, leaders, and we are to listen to what they say. Even if their rulings aren't, aren't 100% in right with the Bible, we have no right to um, simply uh, be uh, lawbreakers, as it were. We, we, uh, there I said, as it were. We, we can't simply be um, vigilantes and, and, and rebels. We can't do that. We've got to understand that they sit in the seat of Moses and that they have that authority. Does it mean that everything that the rabbis teach us is correct? Well, in a word, I don't believe that the rabbis today are sitting in the seat of Moses. The judges might be sitting in the seat of Moses, like like the ones I just encountered in my jury duty. But I don't believe that the rabbis are sitting in the seat of Moses anymore, uh, because we now have civil courts. We have we have we have ruling. We have houses of of judgment where the rabbis don't hold those seats. They don't hold those places of authority. And so we need to be careful as believers uh, when following everything that the rabbis say. Again, if something that a rabbi tells you does not line up with the written word of God, you have a right to examine it. But if what they say lines up with the written word of God, well, then it's harmless. Go ahead and uh, follow along with it, whether he's messianic or not. Okay? That's all I have to say on this part of the matter. It's about 49, 50 minutes into this part of the commentary. We'll break it off, call it Part B, and when we return, we will complete my commentary. Uh, we're at the top of page 7. We only have two pages left. The last section will be fairly short. We'll start with the section entitled Hanavi, the Prophet. Okay? Stay tuned.